始めLegionaries, I have a new set of guests, esteemed guests, who I've heard from for a very long time now. Me and Sergeant Barnes here are in the war room, and we have invited two guests from myth of the 20th century, Adam. Hey, everyone. And Hans. Hello. Hello, hello. So I'm so glad you guys are on, and um, I'm sure that you have recently gone into the events in the Ukraine um, as far as, you know, how it's affected us. It's affected us at the gas station. It's affected us politically. And I'm sure there are a lot of uh, spooks out there that are having uh, a lot of knife fights in, in different brothels somewhere in Latin America. But point being is, um, you know, there are a lot of instances where people are trying to pick out the future by referencing the past. And I think that um, what we're seeing now is after the you know civilizational collapse of the Second World War um, in the West, etc., that basically you know we're having this conflict, the civilizational de degeneration, um, and ultimately speaking, there's a lot of like parallels to the past, to Greece, etc. Now I just wanted to pick y'all's brains, especially Hans, here a classicist, um, and just your personal perspective about it right now. My my personal perspective on the uh, on the Ukrainian war. Uh, yep, just so like uh, kind of like once over, and as far yeah. as like you know the Korsan revolution as well. Well, in the Ukrainian war, um, I think that it 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 fits into uh, perhaps a uh, a longer struggle that uh, the Russian state has had to deal with for. Um, roughly over a thousand years, and truly, it goes back to uh, control over the Dnieper and access to uh, specific regions where they can sort of, um, let's say, paper over geographic features with large amounts of manpower. And this is sort of a generic take on why the Russians do what they do and why they behave the way they do, but. I think it is probably the most uh, uh, sort of, you know, simplistic one that kind of provides a good idea for their behavior. No, absolutely. And and and, and, and well, the, so their so their their position in Ukraine and, and the war itself really is just sort of uh, uh, a necessitated um, uh, inevitability of of their general foreign policy. And it, you know, in the context of wider Russian history, this sort of thing is actually not that shocking. There was a time when the Russian princedoms uh, fought quite frequently amongst each other, um, and they killed each other in, in huge droves. They took on different forms, you know, the the Russian princedoms uh, and, and 
uh, chiefdoms in the north looked radically different, uh, you know, only a few hundred years after splitting from those of the south, maybe near Kiev and Suzdal and places like that. Um, and it, it's not that shocking to see them behave, you know, so differently now and treat each other differently. They've always treated each other differently. Um, the idea of, of the national Russian state is always sort of fragmented. So this really is actually um, not that surprising for, you know, the disintegration of Russian foreign policy once again, for them to be sort of fighting amongst each other like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that from the Ukrainian perspective, you know, they necessarily do not want uh, to have to fork over uh, resources potentially in their minds or or sovereignty or decision making to um, to people that, that you know they don't necessarily consider of having you know a, a direct line of authority over them. And I think they also want a, there, there's concerns about whether or not the the larger share of the wealth and in, in some kind of arrangement would be theirs. And I think this is perhaps why the Ukrainians have you know, traditionally rejected, uh, or many Ukrainians have rejected uh, Russian um, leadership. And yeah, even within the, you know, the conference of the Soviet Union, the Ukrainians were often um, sort of acting out and always trying to seize power and trying to shift the, the Soviet Union towards a, a pro-Ukrainian um, mindset, almost a pro-Ukrainian economic model. So yeah. the, the two the two have been sort of on this collision course for a while. It's not really that shocking that they're fighting it out finally. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, you know, a lot of it really is just about uh, control of resources. I think that, uh, you know, the Russians are looking at the iron ore deposits. They're looking at the the natural gas fields. They're looking at the, uh, the soil, depo- you know, soil fertility. And they're looking at uh, geography. They're you know looking at you know the Dnieper River as being a vital access point for trade. They're looking at those old Soviet rail networks. They spent all that time building out and how they can link into the rest of Europe. And you know if they could seize those and, and move the Ukrainians out of the way, they could have a um, a much more rapid deployment of resources into the European market, and they could corner the commodities market in Europe. And the Ukrainians are fighting for the inverse of all that. You know, they see the resources that in their country, and they wanna they wanna capitalize on it. But I don't think it should shock anyone that they're fighting it out. And this is this is really actually the norm of the wider Russian sphere is that occasionally, you know, the um, the various princedoms do fight each other, and they can become quite bloody over um, you know what can appear sort of meaningless, but actually, you know, it, it, this is. Uh, this is a, a large part of their identity almost is this sort of fragmentation. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm sure um, you're well aware of like, uh, I think it was Simeon Kolchak, uh, the general, Ukrainian general during the uh, white, you know, white and red civil war there. Um, so it's not really new. Um, I've heard two different aspects about this. I mean, obviously we're talking about the economic and uh, real politic reasons as far as the contestation of that territory. However, um, there's like two other elements here that I kind of wanted to talk about was specifically, you know, the Ukrainian, like, let's say there, there's like two contending schools. One is that the Ukrainian ethnicity exists and that it is separate from the Eastern Slavic, like, you know, great Russian, um, cultural ethne. And then it's the other that says that, well, Ukrainians kind of like all kind of contrived and that the only other like genuine ethnic group is the Galician 
um, ethnic mm-hmm. group, which are technically the Rusinians, right? Um, but then if you yes. go beyond, yeah. beyond that, uh, I think it really what you know what it's coming down to is that after the fall of the Soviet Union um, and Russia reasserting itself after having recovered from the 1990s, is this competition between the United States and obviously the reformed Russian Empire, let's say, Putin as Tsar, right? And it seems to me that what's happening now is a replay of 1850s Crimean War, where like the Russian princedoms, or in this case, Putin, is trying to reassert his control to a warm water port in Black Sea and uh, having greater influence upon Europe as a whole. I think that that's that's correct. And um, more importantly, I view, um, you know, a, a lot of this... On the point of, I should start on the point of the the ethnic question. You know, I actually don't really, um, I, I don't really like to veer into that. But I'm, you know, I'm not Ukrainian and I'm I'm not Russian, so it's hard for me to know the um, the ins and outs of their their identities. Mm-hmm. And, and I've seen Ukrainians uh, argue both ways that they feel they are part of a wider Russian sphere or the wider Russian identity. And I've seen Ukrainians argue um, that that's just totally happenstance. They have nothing to do with it. Uh, and I've seen Russians argue both ways on, on behalf of Ukrainians. And Russians argue multiple directions of, about their own ethnic ethnic origins, their own ethnogenesis. You know, ultimately, I think that um, these are extremely large countries, right? Mm-hmm. And th- these are extremely large uh, groups of people. You know, there's 40 million Ukrainians, or there were, in Ukraine alone, probably around the world, it was probably close to 60, 70. I mean, there's just so many Ukrainians. There's so many Russians. I mean, depending on how you, you know, count Russians, there's probably over 200 million of them in Russia and around the world. So uh, whether it's, you know, full you know, blood or, ha- you know, half Russian, whatever, um, these are massive groups of people, and of course, they're all going to have their own ideas about what they are. This is not a um, a small, you know, specific ethnic group in uh, on, on one island in Indonesia, right? They can rightfully say who and what their identity is and where they came from. You know, it, it's very murky. Mm-hmm. I think that you know, I've seen the Ukrainian government, for example, on this ethnic question weigh in, and it's always very um, comes across very heavy handed. But it's always, you know, oh, um, it, it's it's like uh, the Schrodinger's ethnic question. We are both Ukraine, Russian and not Russian at the same time. Yeah. And it's when it suits, you know, it, this is a, this is a failing on their part because it comes across as just schizophrenic. But it's like, you know, uh, we we are the true Russians. But by the way, Russians are, you know, mongrelized Finno-Ugric freaks from the swamp, and we're not that <laughs> at all. And so, and it's, and this is like, you know, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, at one point, the Ukrainian government actually used the term Finno-Ugric to refer to Russians, and it was like, it was just unreal. I've never mm-hmm. seen that kind of, um, you know, them so desperate to to say things like that, and nobody cares. I mean, you know, nobody has any idea what any of that means. Nobody gives us nobody cares and um at the same time you know there are russians that would probably say yes you know i'm the fourth udmurt and i have you know and we're only half slavic but this makes us greater and my great-grandfather was uh mingrelian from the caucasus you know these obscure ethnic identities but i'm still russian at my core then or you have 
Russians who will say, I'm from, you know, uh, Nizhny Novgorod and I'm true, a true Slav and, uh, you know, and, and Ukrainians are, are half Polish dogs. And it's just, it, it's, you know, you, once you realize how complicated these questions are, because these are, again, such huge groups of people and over such a widespread area, mm-hmm. of course, they're all going to have different views of their own ethnic identity. Of course. Um, some some Ukrainians are definitely just part Polish. That's just a fact. And there are some Russians that are just, you know, part Finno-Ugrian. And that's just a fact. And ultimately, it actually, I don't think it matters too much in, in terms of the, the competition going on right now. I would say the ethnic discrepancy uh, between them is like uh, is like background noise. You know, it's really it's really about the, the, the resource control. I, I, I would, think that I, I would say not not being an expert, but just my read and listening to other people who are from that part of the world, I think that the nationality aspect, setting aside the ethnic aspect, is actually prominent right now. Uh, the the it, it allegiance is, it's big, to I think because I think it's big because you're right on the national aspect. It is it is big. Because the it, because they've made it a big deal, you know. Now we're you know now there's these insults being hurled back well, and forth at the government level, and it's bordering on like internet HBD racism. It's just it's it's <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, I, and I'm, I'm just trying governments. to I'm trying to look forward, and and this thing has been going yeah. on for ten years plus, you know, arguably longer. But the the, yeah, the actual yeah. physical violent conflict has been going on for about ten years. And the whatever good blood may have existed between the ethnos of the the different peoples in the different parts of this yeah. region, I think it's being overridden by the bad blood of the, the the killing that's been going on. And whatever Putin wanted to achieve in taking the predominantly Russian uh, leaning areas of the east. He may get some of that, but he's definitely not going to get the allegiance of the rest of Ukraine, and he may not even get anything in the East. And when it comes to the economics of it, personally, I don't think this was... I mean, if, if you're just looking at it from a sort of a cost-benefit analysis, I don't think Russia's benefited from this. Um, I, I think they're, they're, they're going to suffer. Maybe they thought they wouldn't have so, such high a cost to this, and maybe they thought they could get something out of taking these pieces of land. But Russia's a huge country, and if you're talking about natural resources, I don't think they're, they're really short on that. Maybe they, they need better ports, it's but they had, they had Crimea, and so I don't, I don't really yeah. know what they're gaining from this, honestly, other I than a, that, a pride yeah. thing. And I think that's really what it was about, from my I would doubt. I, I doubt... Personally, I doubt that it's a pride thing or that I, you know, personally, I, it doesn't even seem like it never really occurred that the, the Russian government really cared about the Donbass people that much. I think that their their original take was like, well, why don't you just move? You know, why don't you just move into Russia? We'll give you citizen, like a ex- expedited citizenship and this will be done. But I think that then it occurred to them, well, we might not want to do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, some of the most critical Soviet infrastructure is in that region. And it was, you know, it'd be like if we gave up, um, you know, huge, uh, I don't know, petroleum refining plants in the United States, just because they were built in the 60s. 
you know, we still need those or giving yeah. up nuclear plants or, or giving up grain silo. You know, there's so, really so there, critical. There have been some you know, nuclear power plants that have been under. Well, hold on. Let me, let me finish here. Let me okay. Finish. I was just hoping you <laughs> could go through what. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe yeah, we should let so, Lance do in, a show. So too. in the, well, in the, in the iron, in, in the East, it is most, it's iron ore processing facilities, steel mills, right. natural gas plants, railroads. So those are the primary, up, by the way, which have been blown up. So a lot of this yeah, is, so what do they get from so that? Is, it's sort of, yeah. Exactly. So the, the raw materials are still there. Your, your point was, you know, they already have so many commodities. Why are they yeah. interested? And I think that it, it, part of it has to do with the e- more easily exploitable nature of the materials there. So, for example, okay. a lot of the natural gas deposits in, throughout Russia are, are difficult to access. It requires an extremely complex uh, supply chain system. Something Russians have never been particularly great at is managing their supply chain. So, you, you don't going, say. <laughs> yeah, and going. I wonder and going why that to is. These are, and go, going to these areas to get these resources uh, is is costly. It's difficult. They always needed foreign companies to come help them kind of finish the job. Whereas the gas fields and the iron ore deposits in the east of Ukraine are right there. They're a nice flat territory outside of the mud season. They're easily accessible. They're not that far underground. So it's suddenly, you know, this is why the Soviets were already exploiting those resources before the fall. And um, just because, you know, again, my my point was that um, you have to view the, the infrastructure the Russians put in place during the Soviet era as something they they still need in a, in sort of a continuation sense, just because, you know, it'd be like, well, the government was different in 1960s America. So we ought to just get, not care about those um, refining plants. And we still need those. We're not, we don't have, we haven't built any more and we still need those desperately. See, and just, just go and ahead. I think that, I think that in the East to kind of finish my point, mm-hmm. that infrastructure is still there. Some of it's been blown up, but it's still there. It's still needed. Um, they don't want to give it up. And I, I think this whole conflict was never really about, uh, you know, the ethnic pride or, or national pride or anything. Um, and when they looked at it, it, basically just came down to this is critical infrastructure. And if, you know, the Ukrainian government being independent was already a, an issue. Now we're looking at kind of a, a hostile, potentially hostile one. Um, you know, this this was infrastructure that we, we thought we were going to have access to if we don't have access to it. Um, no, this, absolutely. this is a major blow. And I think that that was when the calculation for how to take the Donbass started. But it was never about, you know, the ethnic stuff. The ethnic stuff has come later as both countries' populations have been radicalized by, you know, attacking each other in the media. Yeah, um, I think what the case is here and why I kind of bring up the Peloponnesian War, just for the audience, I don't want to uh, insult your guys' intelligence, but for some of us who don't uh, spend time reading all these books and stuff, it's um, basically the, the background of the Peloponnesian War and the Hellen- Hellenic world at the time is the fact that every polis was formed from tribes, which had an ethnic affinity and had some genetic differences or you know cultural differences, etc., and the initial conflict to the fraying point came over the island of Corsaira. And ultimately, you know, ethnically speaking, you know, it's the Dalian League, which is headed by Athens, and then it's the Peloponnesian League headed by Sparta. And obviously, these are two hegemonic powers. One's on the rise in the case of Athens, and the other one is the supreme hegemon. 
Now, I see the parallel here where Ukraine is obviously part of a larger Slavic world, especially the Eastern Slavic world, but the government in Russia is using it as a raison d'etre to basically interdict the hegemonic power of the United States, which is obviously using its soft power to flip the government into its control, right? Just like they tried to do in Georgia in 2008. And then basically the same thing happened back in, during the Dalian League and the conflicts, etc., where the Corsirans were going from a an alliance with the Corinthians and then veering towards a revolution which would have put the you know, uh, democratic faction in place and put them into the satellite sphere of Athens. And obviously, this has upset the Spartans a lot because of their their hegemonic power was threatened. And I, I suppose the reason why I bring this up and the, the Ukraine and all the conflicts that are going on, I mean, even today, for instance, um, I don't know if you guys heard the news, but there are Brazilian protesters that have actually stormed the equivalent of the Capitol building in Brasilia right now. And so um, a lot of this like tension that's happening, it, I think in politics, when it comes to the natural world, you can't say that you can write off coincidences as coincidences. But when it comes to politics, nothing really is a coincidence. Everything is very interlinked, especially in the case of geopolitics. And I kind of wanted to talk about necessarily, you know, as far as Americans who are observing this happening, our our government is is obviously occupied by some other element. And so what can we possibly see after the Ukrainian conflict, uh, which I assume would be after the conflict of Corsaira, for instance, you know, what is the next move? Do you guys think, do you think there will be like a lot of internal displacement and internal like conflict within the United States and, and the Western world, which, which is like within the American sphere in Venezuela, et cetera. I kind of want to pick your brains about that. I don't see much much going on. I mean, in the the western uh, the western world, you know, it, it, things have never been more unified th- than ever. I mean, I you know, well, since the Cold you War, have, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, you you definitely this is this is really the the rallying point, and I think it benefits um, the have, uh, the powers that be in the West. Oh yeah, and I haven't seen you know North America and Western Europe. Um, cooperating this effectively in a long time. No. And I think that, uh, that, you know, for the people who had thought, oh, you know, the Russian, you know, within a couple of months, there was this this idea going around when the war started, ah, um, you know, just you wait until, uh, you know, the weather gets bad or, or, or you run out, of, run out of commodities and the Europeans are going to be trying to break away and, you know, this whole thing is going to collapse. And, um, and I always thought that was extremely unlikely and that, you know, really there wouldn't really be any more dissent in the, in the Western world. I think that Western governments have cracked the code for the most part on how to keep the population suppressed. They have lots of tools that they're capable, you know, that they're capable of using now. Um, that they can you know, sort of stave off large-scale economic crises. Um, they can always acquire commodities from the third world. It might be more expensive to get it, but it can be done. And the Russians can be boxed out. Uh, and I think that that sort, that sort of is happening. You're seeing a real bifurcation um, that in some ways is actually going far beyond what the Cold War uh, saw. You know, and during the Cold War, the the economic relationship between the Soviet Union and Western Europe was interesting in that, um, despite you know potentially being 
you know, mortal enemies, they actually had quite a deal of cooperation with each other. Um, and I think the Soviets uh, saw themselves, you know, particularly the, the Soviet leadership, just saw themselves as part of the wider European sphere, weren't particularly interested in some kind of um, death match with, uh, with France and Britain. Um, and I think likewise, most of the leadership in Western Europe was not particularly interested in that either. Um, whereas now the, the thinking has changed entirely and there's discussions of, you know, potentially the French, for example, um, uh, having no relationship with not only the Russians, but potentially Kazakhstan for nuclear fuel anymore. Um, the, you know, the French are basically looking at a, at a neo colonizing, uh, parts of Africa. It, for the for the sole purpose of acquiring commodities that they need, uh, whether it's nuclear fuel, whether it's iron ore, whatever it is, um, if they want it, they're going to go get it elsewhere. You know, the German government, for example, was actually in Namibia recently mm. trying to secure some kind of strange hydrogen contract. Yeah, the, the Germans are the stup- most desperate for, in this whole thing. They looked fairly stupid on paper, but it shows you that they they have you know they have decided that. Um, the the economic relationship is going to be severed, and they're going everywhere they can, uh, shopping for resources. Effectively, you know, uh, I think, I think that, and to, to your point about Brazil, I think that this is probably a large reason why uh, Bolsonaro um, was was gotten away with and was basically run out of the country. I think he was uh, spotted at a Publix in Florida shopping for uh, I, I don't know, like Gatorade or something recently. Yeah. And he looked he looked ridiculous, but um, you know that he was probably dispatched uh, specifically because there's a there's a need for a stooge like Lula uh, to be in power in a place like Brazil, so that um, commodities the access <laughs> access to those resources is is done uh, is is accomplished very easily. You know, keep in mind, Lula is this is a convicted criminal who uh, was in jail until recently for, you know, yeah. for being a, a screw-up and, and, and a degenerate kind of goblin figure in Brazil. And he and, was a communist terrorist. He is a real specimen, and they put him back in there because he's a guy really with nothing to lose. And you can push him around just to guarantee him freedom will allow you to run roughshod over that country. Absolutely. So that, you know, I, I think that um, the Western world has probably never been more united. And I, ex- I suspect that uh, much of the ongoing chaos in Latin America right now is probably attributed to the, to the strategic vision of basically never going back to the Russians for anything that isn't absolutely necessary. It's interesting and, that you mention about um, Africa specifically because of the Belt and Road Initiative and the String of Pearls from the PRC expanding mm-hmm. into those same areas. I wanted your perspective as far as the State Department pushing Russia and China, who historically actually have been more at odds than with us, um, together in an alliance. What do you guys see in that? Well, I think can, it's can, can in, I address uh, the, uh, the last question? Um, so regarding what what is the... What does it all mean for the West and the East with this new Ukrainian operation, uh, et cetera? Uh, A couple things about Brazil I thought were interesting lately. Uh, 
I didn't know that Bolsonaro was hanging out in Miami or wherever he was, but that doesn't really surprise yeah. me. Uh, Florida is like it was for the Cubans, a big safe haven for a lot of Latin America in a particular Brazil, cause it's the largest population in South America. And so a lot of there's capital, a, there's a goes, massive, massive, uh, venezuelan population in florida now and it's all yeah. like upper middle class rich people from venezuela yeah, yeah. and florida gives yeah. tax advantages to foreigners for owning real estate i forget exactly what it what it is but it, it's it's incentivized and that props up the real yes. estate market yeah. there i don't know if desantis is involved in that directly i'm sure he's aware of it but this has been a, a long-going uh, strategy of Florida well before DeSantis it really has nothing to do with him. But uh, the other thing I noticed about Brazil lately was that their stock market actually has performed unlike many others around the world uh, much better. I think the only other exception is perhaps China's, uh, the China uh, stock market, partly because they've, uh, they've stopped their zero COVID policy and opened up their version of uh, hyper lockdowns. Uh, and let some of the economy function again, and their stock market has done well. But also Brazil's has, which is interesting to see. Uh, and you know, I don't, I don't like to put my personal investments in places like this that I don't have a firm grasp on. But my just general impression of just glancing at it was, yeah, there's something going on down there. I don't understand it. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, really. I don't have any control over it. But it's interesting, and I think it correlates those those movements with, I think, what you guys are describing to further support that. Um, we touched a little bit upon you know, France. I, I, I'd just like to emphasize that I think France is going to be fine because of, I think, their energy uh, energy grid situation. They've, I think, wisely uh, put most of that onto a very secure and stable and reliable source of energy. Uh, in, nu- in the form of nuclear energy, they've got about 80% of that coming from these power plants. And I think with the shutdowns of the supply chain coming from Russia, which predominantly was a natural gas pipeline to Europe as the lifeblood of the energy and chemicals infrastructure in the manufacturing and heating uh, aspects of the European society, I think France is looking pretty smart as opposed to Germany which has had to turn on their planned shut, uh, shutdowns of their coal plants and then sw- turn that around and turn them back on, uh, resume their ridiculous strip mining of parts of Germany. I think we talked about it in our show, Hans. You said that the Black Forest is being exhumed because they they don't have nuclear power anymore. They shut it all all down just about. Um, I think they might have halted there, one like or two reactors. There's like 300 or so villages um, throughout Germany right now that have effectively been pulverized um, to make way for expansion of uh, of coal lignite processing. Or, I'm sorry, lignite coal processing, yeah. There was actually a, uh, a you know, uh, there was a very striking visual that someone uh, posted the other day, and it was um, members of the... Uh, the German police in in riot gear protecting one of these uh, coal processing plants uh, from uh, you know sort of green protesters, let's say, despite the fact that the uh, the German Greens are one of the leading parties in uh, in the Bundestag right now and have you know virtual control over the economy. I mean, uh, uh, Hauerbach or whatever um, 
uh, whatever that guy's name is, is the, is the German economic minister, and he's a, he's a member of the Green Party. Mm-hmm. So here, you know, you have the Green Party of Germany basically endorsing um, the expansion of coal mining and uh, the destruction of rural Germany to keep um, the fledge or the, uh, the the desperate German industrial sector online. Uh, as much yeah, as possible. In the short term, they don't have a choice. Uh, fortunately, yes, this winter yeah. has actually turned out to be somewhat mild, and th- the Europeans are really lucky because of that. Uh, but what they were worried about uh, prior to the winter was that they would have potentially a, a bad one, uh, very cold temperatures, and they would have to rely upon various sources of fossil fuel because obviously you can't heat your home with a solar panel that's covered in snow and there's no sun to begin with. And so the energy venda, which is what the long running German policy of transitioning away from fossil fuels towards renewables, not including nuclear, which I think is unwise, uh, has really shut down a lot of their, their base load of the electrical grid and their, their, their heating was traditionally supplied by, the Russians from natural gas, as well as their industrial base with natural gas. None of that is available. Uh, I think they might be still getting some from Nord Stream 2. Uh, the pipeline that was blown up, I believe, was Nord Stream 1. Uh, and they're getting some still. I believe some of it might be still flowing through some of the other corridors. But they've severely uh, lost a lot of that supply from Russia. And they they did a crash construction project to build uh, LNG terminals uh, in in the north of Germany to receive natural gas from the United States and places like Qatar. They're, they're building uh, and, they're building floating terminals right now and I think that the the strategy is to turn Spain into the uh, primary entry point for American uh, North American uh Shipping, or I'm sorry, uh, shipping of, of LNG to Europe, and there's, the north, there's northwest plan, part of, of Spain because Portugal cuts off a big chunk. Yeah, of I mean, so there's there's yeah there's like three regions of uh, of Spain around the northern coast, I think. Yeah, that would have these terminals. There's already some. There's already two in place, one or two in place, and there's they're building more. And are they building pipelines pipe- to to go yes, through there's, France? Yes, there's a there. Yep, there's a pipeline project. Some of them are going to go over underneath the ocean, so they can go from Spain directly into the ocean, then up through Italy into Germany. Some of them will go overland through France. But the wider idea is that this will then, uh, some of it will be processed and utilized in Spain, and it will generate electricity for the wider European grid. So I think what people forget is that Europe has... Um, sort of a, a cooperation a grid cooperation agreement. I can't remember the the, the name of the organization, but uh, the Europeans actually do share electricity across their markets, and it makes it actually very easy for certain regions of Europe to purchase uh, more electricity from other regions that aren't using it at the time. So, for example, the, the Brits have actually been having a, a tremendously difficult time um, uh, not having to do load shedding on their grid. And in order to do that, they've had to purchase large amounts of electricity from France recently um, through its nuclear generation. And this has put France in a very difficult position, and France has continued to purchase uh, 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 uranium uh, from Russia, now, although that apparently may stop, uh, in order to continue to keep the lights on, uh, so mm-hmm. to speak, and to keep other parts of Europe online. So 
some parts of Europe, like Spain, will not only act as sort of the transit terminal, they will actually uh, eventually start generating electricity, uh, and that'll be uh, you know, used in the wider European market. Um, and you know, going back to the, the chaos in Latin America, um, the, the both the Portuguese and Spanish ministers have been spending actually an inordinate amount of time in Latin America the last 10 years. For a long, there was a, there was a long stretch of time where Spain effectively forgot Latin America existed. It wanted nothing to do with it. Um, part of this was during the Franco period. Um, they they basically had no, no idea what was going on. They really didn't care. Um, Spanish politics was too cumbersome to deal with foreign policy, let's say. Uh, and the Portuguese basically were obsessed with holding on to their African territories. And when they lost those, their foreign policy basically folded up. But the last 10 years has seen... Uh, Got to keep that countries. Mozambique. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they, I mean, they were, they were ready to fight tooth and nail for, for Mozambique. It was just it was bizarre. But, uh, you know, it, the two have spent an inordinate amount of time the last decade in Latin America. So much so that I think uh, the Spanish prime minister has personally visited multiple Latin American countries, uh, not that uh, very recently. And uh, there's definitely been a, a push for expedited visas for uh, citizens of these countries to e more easily enter Spain and Portugal proper. And I think that the wider strategy um, in terms of, you know, you're talking, talking about how united the West is, I think that the West is extremely united in uh, filling Europe up with people. And Spain and Portugal are taking the easy route and they are deciding to fill it up with Latin Americans. So there, you know, increasingly there's reports of uh, Spaniards of seeing large numbers of um, what I think were originally were like Argentines, Chileans, uh, Colombians, uh, and now Peruvians, Bolivians, Uruguayans uh, making God. making their way <laughs> into Spain and not and lit and settling there. Um, and, and the Portuguese have noted huge amounts of Brazilians have moved in. Um, so these the, the sort of the West is definitely uniting around North America providing the energy uh, and Europe processing it. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, I think that they're going to need large numbers of people. And uh, and Spain and Portugal will be sort of uh, utilized as the, the primary hub for the North American energy transition for Europe. So and they will they'll be colonized to make that more more easily uh, done. Of course. And I think that the energy situation in the West isn't as dire as we like portray it to be, especially because America has a lot of untapped resources that we can tap into. The the only reason why we like offshore our oil to like Saudi Arabia and OPEC is just because of how cheap it is to extract. However, what I think my time in the military and like talking to higher ups, um, the the main concern is the you know pipeline of uh, industry basically we we off put all of our industry including what people don't understand is including ammunition and chip uh data and like basically chip manufacturing to taiwan to the prc etc and now what we're seeing is with the unity or increased unity between china and russia that our industrial base our globalized industrial base is 
basically compromised, right? So effectively, Taiwan being uh, under threat of invasion is actually strategic, strategic interest because of the fact that they're the microchip processing, uh, you know, center manufacturing of the world right now. And if that were to be taken, there are a lot of like economic ramifications, but military ramifications for the United States government. Now, what I'm kind of most concerned about is necessarily the lack of industry in the West and the primacy of the service industry instead, or service, you know, in general, like white-collared stuff that doesn't have manufacturing. And we can see this now in the Ukrainian conflict, where the complete disparity in military, you know, uh, munitions and, and all kinds of hardware are lacking on the NATO-aligned um, Ukraine because of the fact that Russia and China are still too large industrial bases of uh, manufacturing and pitting them together still seems to be um, a trump card having industry on your side as opposed to just you know finance etc what are you guys opinions about that well there to your first point um the part of the reason why we've always sourced from opec specifically the uh the gulf arabs hasn't just been that it's cheaper to extract it's much cheaper to refine that oil they have what that's the sweet crude is, you know, it's kind of colloquially known. The refinement cost for that crude is so tremendously cheap. Um, and it's interesting because some of the worst crude in the world to refine, you almost have to do it at cost, is actually Venezuelan oil. And the irony is that OPEC was originally a Venezuelan-led uh, organization in order to sort of game the market on global oil reserves because they faced a very troubling issue in that nobody wanted to refine their oil. So the, 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 one of the difficulties of the cost of, of, of taking oil is actually the, the cost of refining it. Uh, it can be extraordinarily expensive depending on where you get it from. From the Russian Urals mix, uh, this, the Gulf Arabs have some of the best easily refined or crude on the planet, and that's why they're, um, they're dominant. And it probably is a, a, a brilliant strategic a decision in the United States to drain the whole planet of oil before using our own reserves. I've always suspected that was the that was the intentionality behind using offshore sources or I using agree other with country you. sources was to was to drain the whole planet. <laughs> it never made sense yeah. why exactly why exactly you know the United States went from an energy uh, a large energy uh, uh, sort of extractor and refiner and and uh, and uh, exporter. To this long period where we basically did none of that, and um, part of it was there was a need to catch up technologically, so we had to wait for the Shell Revolution, and there were some other um, engineering challenges we had to face um, because we spent so much of like the early 20th century, late 19th century, getting the easily ex extractable crude out um, from places like Pennsylvania. But I, I think that now the strategy has just been, well, let's just suck the whole planet dry and we'll be the last people left in the room. I think the United States has 200 years worth of coal or something ridiculous. There's much more up in Canada. There's plenty down in Mexico, two governments that are easily uh, coerced or moved out of the way. Um, I think to your, to, so to your other question, which was, um, you know, on the industry, of the United States basically falling apart. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's a, uh, We've talked about it numerous times on our show. It's it's truly just tragic. Um, probably a very a major strategic miscalculation. Unlike the energy war, I think that uh, the United States made a lot of good decisions on energy for the long term, and a lot of bad decisions on manufacturing. 
and a lot of that was driven by the finance guys. It was it was driven for a lot of underlying reasons, but it was mostly led um, from a banking perspective. It was this wider idea starting in the eighties. You know, look, we we just don't want to deal with this labor thing anymore. We are seeing, you know, the the writing was on the wall for a lot of communist states in the eighties. They were just so destitute and and limp wristed and you know um the only thing that really concerned people was their nuclear arsenal but other than that they weren't really that intimidating anymore Mm -hmm. and i I think it became very clear in fact to some extent they were already engaging in this behavior um they were already starting to make products for the western world there was already a level of interplay between warsaw Pact states and west germany for example but those states were making products at the behest of the Germans, and the Germans were investing in those countries um, to, to, to do that. Now, after the wall fell and those communist governments were deposed, then the Germans really went in. They invested heavily in Poland and in Romania and Hungary and in the Czech Republic, but they were already doing that. They already had their, their feelers in, let's say. And there was already, you know, you can go back to um, to Nixon, ironically, in the 70s, and he was touring uh, Southeast Asia, he remarked to some, he was on the record as remarking, he thought that Southeast Asia would be the industrial center of the world one day. So mm-hmm. there was already a belief that this could be done um, and that these places were naturally suited for for that kind of work. It was just a matter of the transition period. And you think Kissinger had a lot to do with that? I, I think he probably... He probably he might have had something to do with it. It was it was a very wide effort. If you look at the history of deindustrialization in America, it was it was first done explicitly by large financial institutions, and it wasn't necessarily that they went to companies that they had investment in and said, "Tear down your factory pronto, fire all your workers, and um, and, and do something else. Go to China." It was more investing in companies that wanted to go to China. Many of the companies that actually uh, they that they invent, wanted to invest in were new companies. For example, TSMC, the first iteration of TSMC was started by a guy who was actually employed by Texas Instruments as a like uh, guest engineer or something from Taiwan. Um, in Taiwan in the early eighties was late seventies was a joke. You know, it was it was basically. Uh, it was a, a little hermit island that, you know, was sort of an anachronism. Nobody really understood right. what to do with it. Chinese were too disorganized to go take it back. And the United States had much more pressing priorities in, in other parts of the world, namely the Soviet Union. But suddenly, you know, there was this idea, well, why don't we just invest in, uh, in places like that? You know, let's invest in Taiwan. Let's invest in these new companies. And... Part of it had to do with the fact that uh, in the 80s, bond yields flipped for the, they, you know, they inverted for the first time. And so uh, large financial institutions, financial institutions in the United States were looking for return on investment, very easy return on investment. And they went to East Asia. They went to Latin America. They went wherever they could, where they could find somebody that was willing to do something, um, any new company that was around. And they sort of laid the groundwork. The, the 90s death blow to industry, that was more intentional. That was when the U.S. government sort of put their foot on the lever 
mm-hmm. the direction of one, you know, in the direction of deindustrialization with NAFTA and, and a series of other agreements and laws. So there was a whole slew, for example, of product safety laws, labor laws, environmental regulations, some of which are totally fine. Uh, but when they all come in rapid concert, you basically overwhelm, you know, lots of those, let's say, 50 employee factory job or factory companies that are led in some, you know, uh, Muskegee, Illinois, you know, these places that make tools or they or they make knives or they, they make kitchen furniture, this kind of thing. Um, it's just too much. It's overwhelming. They, so the, the choices are either conglomerate with a larger manufacturer, uh, get bought out by a giant holding company. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway was doing this for a while. Or, um, you know, save your honor, save your dignity, keep some of the people employed in terms of the design work, the engineering work, and ship the majority of your assets overseas. And the idea was, well, look, there's already Americans overseas uh, who are invested there. They understand these countries. It just so happens our bank has a relationship over there. Why don't we just go ahead and, and do this? Um, and it, when, I think NAFTA was really, was really, it's not, it's not uh, uh, sort of, and Adam, I think, can back me up. It really is not a cliche to say that was the, the death blow. It was just too overwhelming. It, uh, it basically finished off um, a large number of small-scale manufacturing, small-scale production in the United States. Artisan work, basically. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 it, you know, and it shifted a lot of it down south to Mexico. But you know, additionally, um, when much of that shifted down south, you experienced a wider problem in that many people who suddenly had various kinds of experience in the industrial sector, had different skill sets, were suddenly left without a job, and the wider sector sort of fell apart. There was a general, in order to have an industrial sector, you have to have an ecosystem. You have to have 10 people across different parts of the country that can do the galvanizing process for steel. Their whole thing is you just send them steel parts and they galvanize them for you. They, they go through all the steps. That's just what they do. Mm-hmm. You have someone who you know basically specializes in making specific rivets and they have a good relationship with you know the steel mills up in Pennsylvania, and they have a you know very kind of nuanced contractual relationship. If you start plucking out little pieces of that, and then you pluck out lots of pieces, that doesn't automatically mean you'll then have what's remaining will conglomerate, and you'll fix your sector, and it'll be smaller, but it'll still be functional. It was just totally dysfunctional, and then everybody gave up. In the late 90s, everyone said, okay, it's over. You know, the industrial sector is dead in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody wants to do these jobs anymore because the few remaining ones that were still around were, were not terribly interesting. They didn't, um, the, the wages weren't great. Uh, they were terrible conditions. They hadn't been invested in in 20 years. And uh, they just said, okay, we're just going to pack these up and ship them overseas to uh, to East Asia or wherever. Absolutely. And that was and that was it. And, you know, um, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because there is actually this conversation happening with uh, munitions manufacturing picking yeah. back up. And, you know, the Bradley fighting vehicle, for instance, uh, a lot of them were made in the 80s and 90s. Right. Domestically. Um, and, you know, a year into the conflict. And I think it's no secret that the United States is heavily involved in Ukraine right now um, that 
we still haven't spurred up and this exact um, paradigm that you've said where downscaling doesn't necessarily mean a consolidation. It doesn't mean that yeah. systems are becoming more efficient. Um, effectively, what we're seeing right now is the difficulty in scaling up industry in time of war. And I think that's my point. I guess the wider geopolitical uh, ramification of the economic situation is that pushing, I think the State Department's making a major blunder uh, in Ukraine, having pushed its presence um, and pushed two manufacturing centers of the world, for instance, China and Russia together when they're enemies, which we've kept a like a, a good Kissinger for all his faults was a genius when it comes to, you know, keeping your enemies divided. Right. And I think that what we're seeing now, yes, the West is united, but we have united ex principally the regions which are deindustrialized that don't have the same uh, manufacturing uh, base that we used to have. And then we're putting together the rest of the country uh, or the world that has that kind of manufacturing power and is proximate to strategic locations such as Taiwan, uh, mm -hmm. which make our microchips, which is insane to me that 80% of American microchips come from Taiwan. I don't know if you guys have checked that out, but I kind of <laughs> wanted Adam's perspective on, on this uh, microchip situation. Like, uh, How familiar are you with it? Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm fairly familiar. Uh, I and, and I have a few things I'd like to add on the, the previous points that you and, and Hans were raising as well on the the general trends of industry and I, I think Hans covered it, it. On, on the on the oil aspect. I'll just agree that I think it was um, wise actually not to burn through all of the North American oil deposits all at once you might as well use other people's oil before you have to use yours because it is a strategic asset. Uh, going on to the, I'll just, let me cover the microchip thing. And then if we have time, I'll give my thoughts on the industry thing. Mm -hmm. The, the fact is you're, you're right. The Taiwanese the TSMC manufacturing company in particular does produce uh, a huge amount of what we'd call our electronics chip uh, supply chain, component supply chain. There's a good reason for that. Uh, they have a tremendous talent at doing what they do, and the economies of scale of consolidating all of that manufacturing under one roof basically makes it such that one company, honestly, is better off just doing that type of stuff than a whole bunch of different companies having small operations mainly because the cost of the fabrication equipment has gone up. I'm not sure exponentially, but it's gone up tremendously from where it used to be back in the seventies when Silicon Valley, you know, got its name when Intel was still making everything in Santa Clara and uh, AMD was down the road and they were making their chips to compete with Intel and, uh, People that, used to the, do this stuff by hand, by the way. Like you can like find footage from right. the eighties where, it's like, where yeah, I mean the the chip many the the, the, the semi foundries were just were so simplistic in the early days. I mean there was some cutting edge stuff with Intel that was you know all done by precision machinery, but well, well, in, some Intel of the, the early, early stands stuff was very for crude. integrated electronics. That's what Intel stands for. That's why they came up with that and. What it is is the integrated circuit is consolidating a lot of that hand soldering on circuit boards into a smaller surface area that is 
enclosed in what they call packaging that is basically a black box. And that's why, you know, you can't fix your car anymore because everything is like hooked up to these stupid computers. But before, you know, like, you know, like what Hans is describing, they would literally lay out the circuit boards and, and solder these connections. They put the, the diodes in, they put the transistors in, and you'd have a basic logic circuit that could calculate, you know, uh, four plus four or something. But it's much more elaborate now. And, and in order to make that stuff, at a microscopic scale, at a nanoscopic scale is really what it is. It's like, what, three nanometers? It's insane. Uh, nobody can see this without an electron microscope, literally. But in order to do that, you have to buy this insanely sophisticated equipment. And there's basically like one company, like ASML from the Netherlands, that, that has the best stuff on this. And there is a supply chain of other equipment from Applied Materials and Tokyo Electron and stuff like that that goes into this capital expenditure but small companies cannot afford to buy all this stuff because they don't have the throughput to justify the investment. So it makes sense to go fabulous. And that's basically been the trend for Qualcomm, uh, probably for a lot of Texas Instruments, definitely for Apple, although they're shifting away from TSMC because they want to keep a lot of that stuff in-house. Um, but that's true because of economics. Now, when you mix in the shifting landscape of geopolitics, there is a huge concern now that the Taiwanese concentration is at a tremendous amount of risk from China. And also, the Chinese production base is obviously at risk because a lot of the electronics assembly work gets done in places like Shenzhen for companies like Apple. And Apple's actually been criticized a lot lately because they've predominantly located their final assembly of the iPhones and the MacBooks in China. And they're starting to shift away from that, from pressure from places, ironically, from Wall Street, even though they kind of encouraged it to begin with, uh, but also the State Department. And to sort of transition a little bit towards, I think, the prospects for industry in North America, I'm actually somewhat optimistic and I'm I'm surprised to be saying this because I really always thought that <laughs> the, um, the the logic of outsourcing this stuff was very short sighted, and it's finally, finally, finally gotten so bad that people are starting to see it. And I think there's there's something to the theory that COVID had something to do with trying to push the accelerator on reshoring, although that was happening already. Uh, because honestly, yeah. the the labor cost differential between the East Asian manufacturing base and the North American manufacturing base, at least when you include the transportation costs, has really disappeared. Uh, the And if you add in the fact that the Chinese continue to increase their average annual wages of their workers, it's really not going to be any competition on a labor cost basis. And also with you put in the Trump tariffs and you put in the Biden tariffs. I mean, they've both done the same thing. Uh, mm. they, they no longer have any advantage. And I think that the tariffs are obviously uh, political in nature, uh, but it's basically removed the advantage uh, on just the, the labor cost aspects of the Chinese. The Chinese, however, are the manufacturing base of the world for a reason. Uh, it's not because it makes logistics sense to send all of your oil around India through the Straits of Malacca around Singapore to Hong Kong and, and Shanghai 
to, to give them energy and oil and then build stuff and then ship it again another 7,000 or 10,000 miles across the Pacific to Los Angeles. That's insane. Like logistically, that was a waste of energy. But the reason they, they became so successful is the Chinese are very hardworking and very intelligent. And they're also very organized and unified under one political system that allows them, that happens to be, by the way, very pro-business. Uh, you can have or you know political unification and be anti-business. I mean, there, there's many aspects and examples of that throughout history, but they happen to be historically uh, a culture that likes money, that likes to make money, uh, and it just it made sense from a cultural, political, uh, and frankly just human capital point of view to put a lot of that stuff there. If you're assuming that they'll still trade with you and you can afford to buy what they're selling you. But the United right. States has never had, I mean, literally, the, the, we've reached the highest level of debt to GDP in history. Uh, it surpassed World War II. Uh, and World right. War II was an incredible, world-shattering, literally, event where millions, tens of millions of people died. Uh, real infrastructure was built. And what have we been doing? We, we've been sending people home to get Biden bucks to buy crap from China and to, to support your point. I mean, I think it's ridiculous that we buy all this stuff from, from overseas, but to, to sort of, to, to go to the other side of it, I think finally mm -hmm. the recognition of all the things that we've been talking about for 20 years is finally caught up to wall street and Washington. And they're finally addressing this. And it makes me somewhat optimistic because, because of the lack of, labor advantage China has. It actually does make some sense now. And if there's political will, there is definitely uh, an economic way forward. To Hans's and, point, um, go ahead. Go ahead. I actually want to inter interject here because it's funny that you mentioned if we have a political will, right? Like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, General Spaulding's book, uh, Stealth War. But, I think um, I did read it, that, actually. Is it about China? Yes, it is. Yeah, I did. And I, it's read about the, I read that. Yeah. yeah Perfect. So, so you're aware, like how, like the PRC has penetrated not just our political class. For instance, Mitch McConnell's wife yeah. is the daughter of this huge, you know, PRC official guy who's obviously a, a freaking asset. But at the end of the day, like if any one of us yeah, has yeah, gone yeah. to a modern college campus, there's well, massive that, colonies. That is the real issue. I, I think the fact that they, you know, they have some politician in Washington, whatever, those guys are idiots regardless. They're going to make stupid decisions. But the, the real problem is we have trained millions upon millions of Chinese to go back home and compete with us. That was stupid. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, great. Yeah. It's great for the world, but at what point do Americans get to have a job i mean you, you can't it, the arrogance of the post-cold war era enabled this it was like america can't do any wrong you know we've got the high-tech boom <laughs> despite the fact that half the silicon valley is is run by indians and chinese people we're, we're geniuses okay <laughs> so we we can do anything and we can we can go into debt more than we've ever done before uh america can't do any wrong well it's not true i mean the, there's laws of physics and there's laws of economics you you cannot over and debt yourself. You can't. De you can't destroy your human capital base forever. There's no example of any nation or civilization being able to do that. And eventually, it's going to catch up. And I think the, the sort of foreign foreign student thing was really short sighted. And what it would be was is basically in places like California, where 
a lot of these guys, the Chinese in particular, would show up, is they would pay full freight, whereas the California residents didn't have to because they were citizens and residents of California. But the colleges were like, yeah, this is great. You know, we're going to get four times the amount of money per student if we let in the Chinese. <laughs> Part of the reason why, um, if you look at it, it, I noticed a lot of that when I was in university too. The colonies, as you're talking about, yeah, um, it's a hive mind. It's the board, and, and it and it wasn't it wasn't just mainland Chinese. It was there. There were several other East Asians and Southeast Asians um, there. But if you look at it from the university administrator's perspective, um, it's it, it actually speaks to a a very uh, interesting problem that they are looking at from a from a long term perspective. So I, I had the opportunity to talk to um, a university administrator uh, about this issue, and they told me, look, the long-term demographic trends uh, actually do not look good for the university systems in the United States. And that in, in very yeah, it's short called order, the internet. <laughs> with, you don't need with, to pay within those guys. Within our... Within our uh, not not even just within our lifetimes, but probably before we're all middle aged or you know old guys. Uh, I, I think there's a very real chance that many universities will simply close up. You're already seeing this um, with the the base the collapse of the cottage college industry in lots of rural New England, the rural Upper Midwest, parts of the rural South, um, in, in parts of the Pacific Northwest. Lots of these smaller colleges that really peaked in the 1970s or a little bit earlier um, have folded up. Um, you don't have the more easy availability of, of not going to community college, but going to a simple college, liberal arts college, or some kind of specialization, or just you know general education, and then doing a job in your local area. Um, that's effectively ended. Now you're seeing it really start to impact um, middle-tier universities. And from their perspective, um, in 10, 20 years, they will be effectively out of business because not enough uh, Americans are going to those universities. And it would have been worse. It would have been worse much faster a lot, you know, 10, 20 years ago if they had not accepted foreign students in the wide amount that they did. So the, oh, foreign, oh yeah. the, 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 foreign, the foreign student influx that happened, that already happened, if that hadn't been facilitated, I think a lot of universities would have already collapsed because there's simply not enough, you know, because the, the, the generations of Americans are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and it's becoming, despite the fact that everybody was told to go to college, it was simply not going to be enough, and many universities were looking at severe financial difficulties. They were going to have to cut not only you know r and d future expansion, interesting programs, they were going to have to go back to basics or even still potentially even just discontinue whole majors entirely and they didn't want to do that so the foreign student you know issue actually is a wider demographic issue in the United States no um, absolutely and, it has and, a strategic implication too go yes, ahead sorry yeah and I think that the the other reason why that you know, that that was what the university administrator I, I had spoke with had told me you know this is what it was really about it was just demographics they just simply didn't want to go to business so they this was their their best strategy 
um, and they implemented it decades ago because they could already see the writing on the wall. Um, additionally, uh, it, it does serve a, a national interest, or I think that they would like to think that it serves a national interest because they are somehow um, amalgamating these foreign students into their worldview, let's say, into their, into their wider network. This gives the university itself more power overseas. Theoretically, it gives the students of the universities more power overseas, more influence, connections that they can use. Certainly, this is true for the Ivy Leagues. They definitely take advantage of the fact they have so many foreign students with ties back home. Um, you know, this is how many people who go to Stanford, for example, can access yeah, anything from factories to cheap credit, whatever it be, on the other side of the world, they met some guy in university, and they can use that connection. Theoretically, this is actually a value-enhancing uh, method for you know the United States of America, and it, of course, it'll bring those people into our, our, our worldview. They'll see things our way. They'll help us out. They'll do what we want. Um, more often than not, it just doesn't work out that way. More often than not, the, the, the exploitation isn't there, or it's the inverse. And I think the universities have made a massive blunder in, in, in engaging in a lot of this. Not only, you know, had they done it at a tenth of the level they've done it, it might have been sustainable. But, you know, we're talking about millions now that have come to the United States and, and reaped its rewards. And on top of that, you have... So many documented cases of the theft of uh, of IP, of research materials, of, of research itself. Now we've really drifted into just huge um, negative externalities that nobody really thought was going to happen. Well, let, let's and take the universities. Uh, 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 yeah. Go ahead. I, I was so just going to universities have really, uh, I really just have really shot themselves in the foot. I think, and and it was and it was done. A lot of this was just done because. Initially, it was just demographics. They just didn't. They just did not want to go out of business, and they thought this is the only path forward: is to have these kids come in and pay eighty thousand dollars a year to come here, and we can sustain the scholarship programs. We can sustain our less popular, uh, but potentially more intriguing, uh, our program. You know, academic programs. We can sustain all kinds of operations on campus, um, and. Without those foreign student influxes, I think that the United States university system would have already looked very different by now and would certainly look just radically different in, in 20 years. It, it would be much smaller, uh, much more concentrated, and probably much more akin to that of like South Korea, where it's extremely competitive um, to the point of you know where people commit suicide over it and um, – and much more ingrained, almost pervasively, into into the fabric of day to day life. Of course, of course. So, well, gentlemen, we're coming up on almost an hour and a half here, and so let's uh, let's uh, wrap this up with a couple of different projections from your individual person points of view. Um, Adam, first, uh, what do you think is going to happen in the next ten years? I know Dmitry Mevdov, the Prime Minister of Russia, has said that. Um, the UK will rejoin the EU, and the EU will fall, and then it will all fall under the hegemony of the Germans. Now, I think this is a little bit far-fetched and not going to happen, but what are your principal um, you know, uh, predictions for the next decade? I mean, that's, that's a tall order, even if you are the Prime Minister of Russia, and I'm certainly not. But w what I'll predict 
is that I think globalization is going to slow down. I think there will be an era of deglobalization. I've heard this from some pretty smart people in the financial and tech world to underscore the things, things we've been talking about to build off of the brief discussion we had on semiconductors. There already is remanufacturing, reshoring going on in places like Arizona. TSMC is even being forced to set up there. And I think that trend will continue for reasons of economics, reasons of geopolitics. Uh, the opportunities actually are good for reshoring. Uh, and I think that that will bring back some of this industry. It's going to be difficult because of the things we've talked about, about the old timers not being there anymore and the kids not knowing anything about how to change a tire, let alone set up a machine shop. But that, that information, the good thing is the information's on the internet. It's in books. You can figure it out. I mean, Elon Musk didn't know how to do any of this stuff, but he's a smart person. So he, somebody asked him, how'd you learn how to put rockets in space? Like, I don't know. I read books. What do you do? Uh, it's possible to reshore and reindustrialize. It, there just has to be a will and there has to be the right conditions. And I think we actually we do have some of those conditions. When it comes to like what's going on socially, politically, that's, that's a much messier subject and much more unpleasant one for me. But I think there is a recognition in the West that the workers have been shafted. And I think there is a tacit willingness from the leadership to give some of the share back to them because if they don't, they're going to have the yellow vest movement. They're going to have another Trump movement and they don't want that. So they'd rather have a moron like Joe Biden handing out cookies to people <laughs> uh, to keep them quiet. And I think that will be allowed because they don't want to revolt. And we're probably going to see more of this non culture war nonsense. But I think there will be some positives in the economics. Uh, I think there will be a reversal of some of this wokeism because I think people are just tired of it and they, they want to feed their families and have a family. Maybe I think that's more important to people long-term. Uh, so I'm actually somewhat optimistic. I, I think Russia is in huge trouble. Um, and I think China actually is having some problems too, because they've run out of runway economically. They don't have that labor advantage anymore. People are tired of being taken, you know, all their jobs taken from them. Uh, I think both of those countries actually are going to not see uh, great, great things in the future. Um, and it's not to say that I have any ill will towards them. I just, uh, I happen to not live there and I happen to want to live in an okay place. And so I'm sorry, <laughs> but I, I'd rather have my country do, uh, do a little bit better if, uh, if they, I think they, it's they a, slow down a little bit. I think it's objective. It's not partial. You're not, you're not partisan. I mean, obviously we're biased, but I don't think it's a partisan observation, but are you as sanguine, um, hounds? About the next 10 years? Yes. Um, to some extent, I think that it, there's a couple of different aspects to it. You know, we didn't actually didn't get a chance to talk too much about Peloponnesian War. We'll have to come back on and do that, uh, do that at a later time. But like the Peloponnesian War, I was thinking about this. I, I suspect over the next 10 years, uh, uh, conflicts will become much more murky. And they'll become uh, global, and you'll see a lot more interaction with the third world in terms of direct military conflict. And 
one of the facets of the Peloponnesian War is that what was effectively the third world to the Hellenic world, which was everything from Thrace, I'm sorry, Thrace to uh, Sicily, to parts of uh, of Asia Minor um, or Anatolia, they became you know intimately involved with the conflict, and you had. Spartans, in some cases, directly fighting in these locations, and in others, you had the Athenians directly fighting. So I suspect you'll see for the first time, not the first time, but you will see the gradual reintroduction of, uh, of U.S. combat operations all over the world. The United States will be in Mexico, I suspect, in the next 10 years. Uh, we will be in Colombia, more than likely. Um, you will see direct American action in parts of Africa, um, Probably a very, very large-scale, um, relatively large-scale American mercenary operation in Eastern Europe. Uh, and likewise, I suspect you'll see Russians all over the place. Uh, I think Wagner is just a precursor to, uh, to, to that sort of foreign policy. They will, they're going to be everywhere. Um, and that's one of my predictions for the next 10 years. It, it'll be like the Peloponnesian War in that the, the huge powers of the world will be engaging in much more direct, uh, open military combat, not with each other necessarily, um, but in various r- regions where they have some kind of interest they would like to satisfy. And that will be, uh, I think, shocking to a lot of people. It'll be like a return to the W years, but it'll be much more chaotic uh, and it'll be a lot worse, I suspect, and, and pretty um, pretty difficult for people to cope with. Uh, in terms of the economic situation, I you know most of the planet is uh, probably going to be about the same as where it is now. It'll probably just be a lot less lackluster. Mm-hmm. Uh, the emerging market phenomena is just dead in the water. Um, nobody cares what is going on in the economy of Cambodia. Nobody thinks it has a future. And the, the likewise for most of the rest of the world, you know that that whole that 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 frame of mind that was very popular up until recently is, I think, gone for good. Um, and the 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 main interest will be, and in, you know, the primary powers of the world will be investing in themselves pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the United States and you know, sort of reinvesting in its uh, its its own infrastructure and trying to rebuild an industrial sector, or it's the the Russians attempting to you know, finish a, a wider internal supply chain for resource extraction and uh, try and resurrect their old machinery industry, or it's the Chinese sort of focusing on their internal property industry and trying to figure out uh, how exactly to plan for the urbanization initiatives and the fact that China's demographics are now upside down. A lot of the big powers are going to be focusing internally um, while maintaining these sorts of small but you know very open direct combat operations uh, around the world, um, and and I think on top of that there will be a you probably see some very strange cultural shifts over the next ten years, and uh, uh, you know what's going on now is probably a pre- precursor to that as well, and I suspect it'll get a lot a lot more difficult to navigate and. The smart people will just sort of keep their head down and and write it out and wait it out. Um, Absolutely, I, I think I'm I'm of the same mind as you are. I think that's how it's going to play out in the future, and I think that the demographic collapse of the West is going to have significant ramifications as far as like the civilizational twilight. Uh, exactly. Happens. Yeah. Yeah. 
But for example, um, you're going to see, you know, one many facet of that has been the the, the much talked about uh, rise of these industrial accidents that keep happening around the United States and the Western world. And, um, you know, everyone was thinking, you know, there's something conspiratorial about this and it, it very well could be. But, the, you know, the, the reality on the ground is there's a lot of old guys who are in their 50s and 60s and they're retiring all like right now. And they were the last ones who knew how to maintain all these plants, all these facilities, all these small farms, they were the last ones that knew how to do it. And as the demographic situation implodes, you're just going to see a lot more of that. And that's going to be the big challenge is how do we maintain it? I think the United States is going to be very focused on this issue. How do we maintain it? How do we get back to rebuilding it? How do we build more of it? How do we you know, make it new again? That's going to be the primary sort of motivating idea for for americans in particular i think it's exciting and, uh, yeah it's it's certainly more exciting than the cold war which was very yes undynamic you know what i mean i think we're in a situation where a great power circumstance where we have a lot of interface with different and varying uh political forces internationally but i guess my my read on the situation personally is a little bit like more sanguine on the the side of the russians and the prc why because for instance i don't know if you guys remember at the beginning of this crisis uh, especially like with russia invading ukraine um we came to understand that the majority of our fertilizer actually comes from russia right and that like 70 percent in europe i think which, that's true i'm not sure about the united states the united states has a pretty good natural gas uh pipeline which is where most of fertilizer comes from but for europe i think that's correct uh, well yeah i mean uh from what i read it was specifically tar it was raising the price the global price of fertilizer which sure. has implications for the but natural gas has come down quite a bit by the way so these things move up and down it's not a permanent thing True, true, true. I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's, uh, from a simple soldier's perspective, obviously you guys are a lot more big-brained about um, you know economics and the manufacturing business, but I think that there's a lot more like um, uh, impetus behind these powers than we give it credit for, but also it's a lot weaker than people that are more, I don't know, Russophilic or cinephilic. Uh, tend to portray it as you know so i think we're strapped for another 20-year hmm. proxy conflict between these two powers and i think what we're going to see is increasingly a more independent eu from the united states but that's my personal perspective and i'm really happy you guys came on i'm sure that in the future we're going to circle back and talk more about the peloponnesian war but i'm glad that you guys came on i uh, take the time out of your schedule and uh from high olympus consult with us mere mortals here i really do appreciate it and um i just if you had any last words uh, just go ahead and share them thanks for having us on i thought you uh, conducted the show extremely well uh i have i have a lot of optimism given that you're a young man and i'm uh approaching middle age that there's some hope and uh <laughs> our shows has a reputation for being very pessimistic and I, I've always viewed us as more realistic. Um, I, I don't want to be a perma perma black pillar. Uh, I, I, I do, I do, I do agree with the things that I said, uh, during the show and I agree with most of what you guys said as well. Um, but you know, I, just to go back to the sort of economic analogy and apply it to the military world or anything else, I, what is the cure? Cause we've been going through this inflation now for a year plus 
what what is the cure for for high prices in classical economics? Well, it's high prices because what happens? People adapt. There's opportunities. If things go up in price, people start making more of it. And then what does that do? It increases the supply and, and decreases the the price. And similarly in politics where one country or group starts getting ahead of itself, there's going to be resistance that happened in after the Cold War. The United States was sort of going everywhere and people got tired of it. That's why people started thinking Russia and China were sort of these bastions of, of hope. And in many ways they were, especially for the people that live there. Uh, but the, the West has gone through a pretty painful restructuring, I think, over the past 10 years or more. And I think that will continue, but I think that was necessary in order for us to get on a better path. And I think it it, it takes a long time, unfortunately, in politics because people, uh, frankly, are, are not that smart, but they're also just busy. And a lot of the things that we observe from an unbiased or maybe just um, a, a position that doesn't force us to have by, as much bias uh, that's obvious to us is not obvious to people who are making decisions, but boomers are eventually going to go, go bye-bye. And the, the next generation who's been frustrated by the leadership in uh, our countries led by these people that just won't go away, uh, will finally have a chance to do something about this stuff. And I think that's another cause for, for hope that you know we, we are the internet generation is very different than the television generation and i think we i'm we so have sorry a, for you i i'm sorry you had you had to be raised by uh these individuals you know with lead poisoning from gasoline i apologize you know we we had we had some advantages but it, it is what it is and i don't want to gainsay you know anybody's parents they did what they could and they they had yeah, some course. uh circumstances that they couldn't control either so you know it is just it is what it is and uh you know i think there's there's some causes for hope though absolutely and so hans any last uh last remarks no no uh no real major remarks uh i you know, thank you very much for having us on i know you'll you'll do uh tremendously well in uh in your your new your new program here and uh I we're we're definitely not as pessimistic and and uh, and dour as I think our audience on our show would like us to be or believes we are. I'm actually a very jovial guy in my real life. This is just an internet character I play, and uh, I mean, I'm only <laughs> a black pillar on TV. So definitely, definitely don't don't give up. And um, the next ten years are going to be as as our uh, great host here said they're going to be very interesting very dynamic much different from the the slow uh, decay of the cold war i think that this will be the first time in a long time where they're going to turn on cnn and they're going to say mom turn on cnn absolutely something is going to be lit and it it is going to be a very (laughs) very uh interesting uh life ahead of us that's for sure well, absolutely. And again, I wanted to thank you just as a background to the viewers here. I've been listening to these guys even before I had a hairs on my chest and before I even got into the Marine Corps or anything like that. These guys were a formative experience and I'm really happy they've come on. And I'm hopeful. I think what the thing is, is that these guys 
give less credit than is due for who they are. I think at the end of the day, Heraclitus said, one man is 10,000 if he is best. These men are one million. So give their uh, channel uh, a listen to. It's the myth of the 20th century. You certainly will walk away with more information, definitely more educated, and certainly uh, prone to souls that are far older than our own. Thank you so much, gentlemen. I really appreciate you. This is General Lance. This is The War Room. Signing off.